Welcome to Mind Love, episode 295. Today's episode is all about how our minds get hooked on drama addiction and how to break free. This is where disease comes from. All the bad things we think about stress is the interruption of that cycle, not the stimulus. We're like, oh, work is hard. That's causing me disease. It's not. Or this relationship is causing me stress, so I'm getting sick. It's not. It is not ever the stimulus. It is our ability and our capacity, our resilience to be with that stimulus and move through the cycle of a stress response. If we are not able to complete it, where we get overwhelmed, flooded, overstimulated, we're interrupting that cycle, that is where disease festers in the stagnation of that cycle, which is a constant for those with an addiction to drama. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. What's your relationship to drama? And no, I'm not asking if you were in the thespian club in high school. I'm asking, are you the drama queen of your circle? Or do you claim to hate drama while finding yourself caught up in it anyways? Or do you actually strive to keep your own life peaceful and stay out of other people's business? I have a confession. I think drama might be my guilty pleasure. (laughs) When someone I know is going through something big, I can't help but joke that I want all of the details because I just don't have enough drama in my own life. But the truth is, we all thrive on drama a little bit, even if we think we don't. And how can we not? From reality TV to social media, we are constantly bombarded with sensationalized stories and conflicts. And it's not only easy to get swept up in the drama, but it's also, on some level, setting new expectations for our own realities. Our experiences shape our thoughts, our personalities, our behavior patterns, including what we see and hear every day. And our brains don't necessarily differentiate between real life and the drama that we watch on TV. Sometimes I even wonder if my sense of humor comes from watching too many sitcoms as a kid. My husband will tell you that a lot of my responses sound like a TV character. (laughs) And I don't mind it. It keeps things kind of interesting. I actually had a friend in high school who watched so much Jack Black that he basically took on his personality. But most of us don't just stop at witty comebacks. We create or attract drama because it's what we expect. Or we're bored without it. Picking fights, engaging in gossip, overreacting, feeling victimized, or seeking attention. Those are all symptoms of being addicted to drama. In hindsight, I can think back to dozens of examples of creating drama or attracting it into my life. Almost every significant event in my life can be viewed through this lens. My teens and 20s were a series of avoidable situations that resulted in way more drama than necessary because of how I viewed myself and the world around me. I was always the hero of my story, which meant playing the victim or not giving people the benefit of the doubt. 
but I also thrived on other people's drama. And while it might seem harmless, it actually deregulates the nervous system, creating more stress and less peace, which can lead to mental and physical health issues. So how do we get ourselves out of this drama cycle? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Dr. Scott Lyons, a licensed clinical psychologist and mind-body medicine practitioner. He's also the author of Addicted to Drama, Healing Dependency on Crisis and Chaos in Yourself and Others. He's going to give us some practical tools and strategies to break free from the cycle of drama addiction and find a path towards healing and wholeness. So three key things we will learn are how our survival strategies and coping responses become embedded in the body, the four stages of the drama cycle, and the physical and mental costs of drama addiction, its impact on relationships, and how to heal from it. This is a really fun interview. My husband said he could hear me laughing from across the house. (laughs) And as a side note, I was overcoming a cold, so please be forgiving of my voice. (laughs) We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family, or you have a work deadline, or something unexpected comes up, and you're all stressed out, and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Dr. Scott Lyons to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. So what inspired your recent topic on being addicted to drama? Oh, well, it hasn't been so recent for me to delve into it. I have been delving into it my entire life. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It actually was my doctoral work. I, I needed to pick a subject for my thesis, and I figured I'd pick myself and my own kind of journey in around drama and why I kind of made unintentionally made life harder than it needed to be and more complicated than it needed to be. And was, you know, in my own healing path, realized there was no resources out there. Like, like here's an example. Melissa, do you know anyone addicted to drama? Oh, yeah. Myself. Oh, wow. We're (laughs) going there already. (laughs) No, I definitely have been in the past. It's funny, though, now, like I have a child care helper and she'll come in and I'm like, she's got drama at her other job. And I'm always like, tell me about it. I have no drama in my life. I need to hear yours. (laughs) Please give me the spice of life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to feel something. (laughs) I want to feel alive. And that is what drama addiction is. It's like we often think it's like some extreme version of attention seeking, but it's not that at all. It's actually this extreme version of trying to feel alive in a world where we have felt more numb or things feel more mundane or boring. And in the extreme version of that, it's like a a pervasive numbness for people who... 
um, have had a lot of trauma or a lineage of trauma or grew up in a household of chaos where they had to clamp down to survive. And it, it shows up as like big and extreme and intense. And so people might assume like they want something out of that intensity, but the thing they want is not your attention, it's affirmation, sensation. It's knowing that they exist and they can belong through that existence. Yeah, there was a quote in your book that was something like, uh, addiction to drama isn't attention seeking, it's activation seeking. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, that hit me right there because uh, that's, that is how I lived my earlier life. And I, yeah. I don't think... I mean, I definitely did not mean to, but there were a series of dramatic things that happened. And then I remember the calm after the storm. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to live in the calm. And yeah. I specifically remember one of my relationships. It was my healthiest relationship I had ever had. I was only like 26 or something like that. And But the ones before that were just so chaotic. There was cheating. There was... A crime spree with one of them. It was Oh, a my lot. God. Can we <laughs> yeah. get into the crime spree? We're not going any further until I hear more about the crime spree. Oh, yeah. My audience <laughs> has has heard this in probably pieces throughout the episodes, but I basically was dating someone who seemed just really mellow and, and non-dramatic. Yeah. What I didn't realize is that I noticed something was off when he was no longer on meth because the meth kind of calmed him out. And so there was this series of unraveling where I realized he was cheating on me and then he yeah. was an alcoholic and a meth addict. Yeah. And long story short, I ended Can up I finding just check? out. Did we date the same person? <laughs> I hope not. Uh, I think we did. <laughs> did you find out that yours had robbed over 50 houses? Because I did. And I was arrested for his crimes with him. Went through this whole two-year spree of having to go into court. It was a lot. And so anyways, I, oh I ran away to LA to get away from him. He did yeah. chase me there. He moved into a halfway house like down the street, broke into my house, threw a brick through my windshield. I had to move again. And then he was finally arrested for another string of robberies and spent the next, uh, he got a minimum of seven years in jail, but up to 11. And so that was a lot. Wow. And so I dated somebody after him that was just normal and I did not know how to deal with it. And so I was constantly so like picking fights and like yeah. finding these dumb things to get upset at him about. And yeah. I remember actually sitting there one day and being like, I feel very upset by this, but mm. logically I know that I shouldn't. I'm going to attack him anyway. <laughs> Oh, that that, you know, red flag couture, as I like to call it, when <laughs> when intensity is in replace of intimacy. Yes. Yeah. And it's like it's what gets us hot and bothered. And we don't even know why. And even the logical part of us is going, this doesn't make sense. And then we roll down the drama hill. And we just start fights to feel something, to feel some version of connection, because, you know, drama is a social glue. We don't often think about it, but the thing that bonds people more, almost more than anything else, is shared pain. Trauma bonding. Trauma bonding. Or as I like to call it, drama bonding, because I wrote a book about drama and just <laughs> changed the T to oh, a yeah. D, basically. <laughs> but it, it's um, trauma bonding, I actually find a slightly different than drama bonding in the, in the sense that. You know, why I call it drama bonding is because it's like we're throwing logs on each other's fire. It, it, it's intensifying one's own experience as opposed to helping them process it. Where trauma bonding is just a magnetism of shared pain. And then if we go the extra effort to drama bond, it's like, 
oh, did you know they did this? And hey, I think I dated that same ex. And let's talk dish. Let's really dive into all the toxic men in our life. And we're just like throwing logs on each other's drama fire and getting it so hot and heated until we don't even know what we're talking about anymore. We're just like erupting and rolling down the drama hill together, so to speak. Yeah. And and on this relationship, yeah. it was, I don't think he knew what he got himself into. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> the one before that, the the one that was extremely yeah. toxic and yeah. uh, that one, I do feel was more of the trauma bonding. Yeah. And part of the reason that I somehow allowed myself to even get wrapped up with this person is his dad died the weekend I met him and my dad had died a few years before and I had gone through my own sort of self-sabotage spiral and a lot of people Mm. had been telling me you need to get over this and you know like you got to just move on with your life mind you I'm like 20 years old my dad had died when (laughs) I was 19 I'm like what do you mean you have no idea what this is like and I remember actually there were points choice points of of knowing I was self-sabotaging because I needed to like prove my pain externally and so it was a whole different form of of the drama addiction but I remember feeling like nobody understood what I was going through and I was just isolated and so when I met this person and his dad died I was like determined to be the person who understood him in a way that nobody understood me Mm. and what that did was make a lot of excuses for him kind of blind myself to a lot of the behaviors until it was too late and I was so wrapped up in it I didn't know how to get out yeah damn that's so intense and it and you're talking about something that's so specific to in like entering into other people's drama which is unintentionally enabling them by being a martyr by being a support system and then having your own physiological consequences and emotional and social consequences as you shared of getting like arrested that's that's such a social consequence of being quote unquote a support system to someone but what you know one of the things that addiction those who have an addiction to drama do is they pull people in they pull people into the chaos as a way of feeling connection. It's like a false sense of intimacy, a false sense of belonging that is comes from, as we're talking about the drama bonding, literally a synchronization of crisis and chaos with each other. And if you're not in that same sort of aspect of chaos in your life, I'm going to pull you into mine until I feel like, ooh, we belong. How did you realize that you were addicted to drama? And did you start to find your way out before your thesis, your doctorate? (laughs) Or was this kind of your process of healing? I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 
I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. How did you realize that you were addicted to drama and did you start to find your way out before your thesis, your doctorate <laughs> or was this kind of your process of healing? I think I'm still, I'm still healing because <laughs> we're all human and it takes time. I think it was really clear to me when I was in my late twenties and life had me at the throat. Like I, I was just ended my first major relationship which was extraordinarily toxic. And I kept going back to it. I don't like to use the word toxic, but for this relationship, I do. It, part of it, it wasn't toxic because they were toxic. It was the it was the dynamics. And this individual had a lot of addictions. They had a lot of mental illness that they were dealing with. And I would break up and go back, break up and go back, break up and go back. When they finally ended it, and I didn't have the choice to come back, is when I sort of spiraled. I had self-abandoned so many times for this individual, not only this individual, but in my life, that I couldn't find my way home to me. So I was lost. I um, was dealing with a lot of neurological issues um, from just the pervasive stress of being with that individual and and, and creating some of that toxicity myself and being in it. I'd lost my health insurance at the time because of the issue with my grad school. I lost a big job. Things were just spiraling and like on top of each other. And usually I could thrive off all this chaos and stress, but it had reached a point where I imploded. 
And I moved in with my parents for a couple of months because I was like, I can't even take care of myself. Like I couldn't, I didn't know if I could get out of bed some days. I couldn't get out of bed some days. And I got rid of everything in my life. I cut off my social life. I cut off my professional life to the arts and life was bland. Like I just, I went to this in my own dramatic way, the extreme kind of approach to healing, which has become super secluded in my parents' house. And I noticed that I, what I assumed was like withdrawal symptoms because I was like throwing up blood and like having really crazy stuff. I had this like weird thyroid thing. I lost like 20 pounds very quickly. Things um, that just made no sense. And I was like, oh, I'm detoxing from the, from the toxicity because that's what it looks like. Now I know it was actually withdrawal symptoms from my own addiction to drama because I took away all the stimulus and I felt better, quote unquote, better or normal when I started picking fights. Like I'd pick a fight with my sister out of nowhere and, or pick a fight with my parents who were taking care of me, or I would call a friend and get really excited when they were gossiping, or I'd watch a movie that was super violent and I'd be like, oh, I'm feeling better. And I, I was like, what? Or, or at a certain point, I was like, what is going on? How could I feel better from picking a fight with someone? What I thought I was detoxing or when I would call my ex, that was a real sign. And we get into a fight and I'd leave and I'm like, finally, I feel like I got my power back. And I was like, wait, what is going on? That's not how power is. You, you you get to feel agency and control and power in your life is through fighting with someone. And that's really when I started to to slow down enough to go, I think, I think the problem is me. <laughs> Maybe the problem is, yep, yep. The problem is definitely, I am a contr contribution. I'm a significant contribution to my own suffering. And um, noticing more and more as I got, you know, started creating more space between my own revving to stress myself out and finding all the conditions that would do it. Like I, I left the arts. I paused on grad school. I stopped the things that I could really use uh, as as fuel to get myself stressed out. And I would then notice all the other ways I was doing it. I would start going, like I'd be in a meditation class or yoga class and I'd start thinking about my ex and like imagining a, a conversation I would have with them if we ever walked into the same yoga class and like what would happen. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have all these subtle ways to keep myself from relaxing, from finding stillness, from finding comfort or ease. And that's, and that's one of the really telltale signs of an addiction to drama is you're in the bathtub, you're at a meditation class, you're with yourself in some easeful way in a garden. And all of a sudden you are thinking about your grocery list or you're imagining a conversation you would have with someone who made you mad or that some story about a parent that's really sad. Just it, it, it's, which is different than like all of a sudden you're finding stillness in your processing. It's more of like all of a sudden you're finding a certain level of quietness in yourself and there's something reflexively that takes you out of it. And there's a constant to that. It keeps you in the status quo normal of like dis-ease, anxiety, urgency, all these sort of symptoms of what addiction to drama looks like. It keeps you in that state of readiness, of vigilance that 
being prepared for the next bad thing to happen. Because if, you know, we, as you, as most of us know, someone addicted to drama, they're on the, they're on the lookout. They always feel like there's something happening. Something bad is happening. Why me? Or, oh, why does life do this to me? And there's a way in which they're really, their attention is really focused on all the bad shit of life. And part of that is, is their whole nervous system has adapted to be on the vigilant lookout for the next threat. So of course, if, if that's what their nervous system is now built around, that's what they're going to see. That's how they're going to perceive reality is a place where that life in the world is dangerous and against them. I was actually reminded as you were talking about a period in my life. Mm -hmm. And I know at this time I was, well, I wouldn't have defined it before this interview as being addicted to drama, but I have spoken about this time in my life as not being able to be alone very well. Mm -hmm. I remember at this time saying, I hate being alone with my thoughts, thinking that it was just like a normal talking point and not realizing how unhealthy that is. But at this time, it was in the beginning of my healing journey. I had, I was getting certified in yoga. I was starting to surround myself with different people. It was really the kind of launch pad, but yeah. I had not processed a lot of my emotions. There were still things that I was unraveling for the next like eight years. Yeah. And I remember in particular finding out certain friends were hanging out and that I wasn't invited. And of course this sent me into a spiral, <laughs> even though it should have had nothing to do with me. I literally wasn't invited. It wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with me, but I remember like sending some snarky text message and just being like, sorry, this was impromptu. Like if you want to come something like that, but I, I spiraled emotionally. And what I would do when I was feeling emotion, whenever I was kind of making myself a victim, it was like I had to intensify it. Yeah. And I would always bring down the box of, I have this little box of my dad's uh, keepsakes, things that remind me of him. And there was this one letter that he wrote to me in it. And there's like tear stains on it to this day, but I would open it up and read it. So I would have like even more of a catharsis. And (laughs) for some reason, that's the image that popped up when you were talking about how we kind of self spiral. And, and like I said, I wouldn't have said at that time before sort of learning what drama addiction looks like that I was addicted to drama. It was just like, Oh, I needed a release or, Oh, this is my time to process or, or some sort of justification for that action. Yeah. And so but it's interesting that it had to get quote unquote big enough to process. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I had to feel more. I was already crying. What did I need <laughs> to feel more of? You know? like, <laughs> yeah. Have you ever done this uh, where you're like driving in the car you're like sad about something and you like choose to play a song that amplifies that sadness, like an Adele song. I have at least 12 playlists that are just called sad. <laughs> <laughs> Will you send them to me? Um, yes. You know, like, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I mean, it's something I think so many of us can relate to of like, wait, why did you play that song? Yes, it could have been validating. But then it also amplified the intensity of your emotions, maybe more than what you had before, maybe to a level that swells above what you can actually process and metabolize to a degree where it's flooding you and distracting you as opposed to being contacted and moved through. Ooh, that was just an epiphany I didn't know I needed. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I, 
you know, and that's and that's really what an addiction to drama also looks like. Is like I have this glass in my hand, and this and this example is is not the best example, but I'm going to give it anyways. It's like there's a crack in this glass. It's not enough to. Um, you know, have the water pour out, but it, it definitely is noticeable to me. But if I put, let's say, if I want to distract myself from that, that there's a, a, a fracture in my glass, I take out a fire hose from down the street and I just blast the water into the glass and the intensity in the extreme, I'm certainly going to be distracted by the, the, you know, the intensity of that. And I'll forget about the little crack in my glass. Now, if we look at that as like a trauma piece, the underlying pain and trauma, we know things like stretch, like, like in yoga, if you stretch a lot, it distracts from an underlying pain. That the intensity of sensation, going and jumping off a cliff with a parachute, going and getting into a fight with someone, those adrenaline rushes also produce a euphoric experience a endorphic euphoric experience. So like when you go for a run, you know that power you feel from a run and it also is releasing endorphins. It's a pain reliever or a pain distractor. Stress does the same thing. And and we when I say stress, it's also like intensified emotion is also in that in that bracket. When I go into these intense extreme emotional responses, which is part of the, like the stress response, I get a little pain relief. I get a little amped up that power that you feel after you go for a run or you like, have you ever felt like really angry and just felt powerful at the same time? Yes. When you have lived an existence of numbness, pain, trauma, which might look like depression, which might look like anxiety, feeling some sense of power and uh, control is everything. And if you, you can get that out of the rise of rage, out of the intensity of some extreme emotion, you're going to have this whole dopaminic experience that says, hey, I don't know what you did. This is the brain talking to the body. I don't know what you just did, but repeat it because suddenly we feel alive. And then if we know we're alive, that means we might feel things like belonging and connection. We might feel like we're not just in constant threat. So let's let's reinforce this behavior. I don't care what the behavior is, says the brain, but it definitely feels better than the malaise of life. So what is your go-to sad song, by the way? Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, which version? <clears throat> um, you know, all of them. <laughs> They're all on different sad playlists. I have a lot of them. But that was one of the when my dad died, I created yeah. his his um playlist for his <laughs> funeral. And also, two years before that, one of my close friends died. I'd created the playlist for their funeral. Don't recommend doing that because you're going to no. put on songs that you love. And then those songs will forever be tied to death. <laughs> so <Yep. laughs> it's why I have a lot of them. And then, yeah. then there's Spotify that's like, play other songs like these. And I didn't, I'm like, I didn't even know Bette Midler could make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bette. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Uh, not not the other part, the Bette Midler part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I would definitely rock some Adele when I was angry. Alanis Morissette, you know the the first album. Oh yeah. Oh god, so good. And it you know that that absolute amplification of of that little feeling that suddenly felt seen and justified by the extremeness of the song. That is like the the song threw logs on my emotional fire. And it's so interesting too because hot. I used to look at it like 
because I had a lot of numbing behaviors. Yeah. Uh, and I still have to watch myself from that. Mm. But a lot of my 20s were unraveling addictions from anything from Adderall to alcohol to bulimia, all the things. And so I, I really related to numbing. And so my manufactured catharsis would confuse me because I'm like, well, what is it about that? Is it that I haven't been feeling at all and now I have to feel a ton? But when I look at it, the ways that I would numb were not ways that I was actually numbing everything. They were still these high sensation, like, like doing like eight pills of Molly in a night. Like I'm feeling something. It's just not my emotions. (laughs) It just ain't. Wow. Lightweight. (laughs) Oh yeah. I went through a phase of doing Molly like five nights a week and a lot of it. But when you're in LA and you're a girl, the drugs are free. And so why limit yourself? You know. (laughs) To all the listeners, if that's your uh, choice of what you want to do next in life. LA. Um, <laughs> Advice yeah, for yeah. my lower self. <laughs> yeah. That's that's our next podcast together. <laughs> yes. We'll actually create a whole new podcast. A whole new podcast. Just advice, advice from, from lower our lower self. selves. We'll record like the last 20 minutes of all my mind love interviews. We'll just be that. And we can <laughs> we can get out all the things that our lower self was nagging at us to say that we overrode for an hour. On my on my podcast, we I do that, and it's an advice column called "Dear Midwestern Mom," <laughs> which is my my like being a therapist for a long time. You don't get to give that like that sort of snarky response you'd love to give if you like, you know, like I grew up with a love language of pervasive humor. Oh, not not pervasive humor, a provocative humor rather. And so, like, that that is my love language. And so being a therapist, you do not get to practice that love language very often. And, you know, I care about everyone I work with. And so that's hard for me to be, like, to sit back and not make jokes. And I still do. Like, I will admit that um, that if people who still work with me, half the time is, like, a comedy hour. And <laughs> it's therapy comedy hour, but it's it's playful. And um, but not enough. Anyway, so like uh, I had to create a little section where I get to finally like say the snarky advice I would never actually say to someone. I love that. (laughs) Very cathartic. It's very cathartic. And so catharsis is not the same as emotional process. And now for another episode of lies we've been told about our health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams... 
Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. So catharsis is not the same as emotional process. Catharsis is an explosion, an unorganized or disorganized emotional expulsion. And we know this from like the, the, the 60s, the 70s, when they were doing like catharsis therapy, and it would often lead to re-traumatization. And why, you know, there's a difference about getting like a volcano, like in an addiction to trauma, it's like you're throwing stressors on top of stressors, on top of stressors, on top of stressors, until you have this big high, which that feels like power. And then that that power has to go somewhere and you get the expulsion and you do feel like, ah, a weight off your shoulders. And it's disorganized. And if you've ever seen someone in the throes of drama or you've been that person, it's disorganized. It's like sloppy. It is not like, I'm feeling some sadness right now. And that sadness needs me to really feel heard. Like none of that. None of that organized connection with your emotion. It's 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 messy. And yes, you feel more. The buildup to that expulsion of emotion is you rise above the threshold of numbness and you feel something. And that feels amazing. And that release, even though it's disorganized, it also feels good because it's been a building tension. And even though you've been using that building tension like a battery pack to function through life, siphoning off of it to like stay awake, to stay engaged, it also has a cost for anyone. And so the expulsion of it, disorganized as it is, has also a hormonal response that goes ding, 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 that felt nice. And the problem is, is with disorganized expulsions, you never actually get to attend to the underlying emotion and the needs that were there. Because all that energy, all that stressors, all the stuff you're adding on top are distracting from the underlying true core emotions and needs. And so in distracting yourself, you get to protect yourself from the pain of being in relation to your emotions or the trauma, but you're also self-abandoning yourself simultaneously. And self-abandoning was really important to survive at some point if you had trauma. If you were here, you would feel like you're drowning in the pain and the suffering. And so you self-abandon or you call, it's called auto-regulation as a, as a strategy to say, I can't deal with this now. Hopefully I'll come back to this later. That's what disassociation is. I can't be here to be with this. So I'm going to like vacate my body. I'm going on vacation for my pain. And hopefully I'll come back and deal with it. Same thing happens in birth. 
Yeah. I mean, you can talk to that. You just had a kiddo. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I. The interesting thing about catharsis, I'm yeah. loving this kind of differentiation because I feel like a lot of us are taught that a catharsis is a really important part of emotional processing. Like we're actually feeling our emotions. But what it sounds like is that we're not feeling we're not feeling our emotions in the way that it's processing them. We're just sort of distracting ourselves with another big sensation. So is there ever any benefit to catharsis or is that just sort of a byproduct of maybe numbing or not processing? So there's the, the question comes down to, and it's a little kind of hard to describe a little bit, but if you can be present with the emotional, the the movement of the emotions, then that's organized. That's healthy. If it's bigger than you are, if it's faster than you can glean meaning from and be in relationship to the underlying needs that are accompanying those emotions, that is a disorganized catharsis. Emotions are a compass. They are signals, somatic signals. So they come from the body to guide us towards something. Hey, joy, that feels good. We should do that again. So we experience this the visceral experience of joy. Anger lets me know my boundaries have been challenged or violated. I should attend to that. So I feel the signal that my boundaries have been challenged or violated called anger. They are a compass towards action. They are a compass towards adaption, adaptation, so that we can continue to thrive in life. They are not meant to be our junk food. <laughs> They're not meant to be used in a way to get us more riled up or to distract ourselves from ourselves. And yet they can be. So I can overwhelm myself with something so as not to feel myself. And if, if my catharsis, so to go back to your question, if my release of emotions takes me and I'm not, I don't feel it. I'm not in relationship to it, but it's just this big thing. No, sorry. It's, it's not helping. <laughs> and I feel very clear after many years of doing both of getting to the point of differentiation. Um, because here's what happens after catharsis. And there's actual research on this is we go through withdrawal symptoms and those show up as boredom and anxiety with an emotional release, um, the healthy kind, we go into what's called restoration, which is the restoring of the basic cellular building blocks of energy. In a catharsis, you go into the withdrawal or into a collapse and you never truly enter into that restoration stage. So you become bored, you become anxious and you main, and you become exhausted. And how do you get some energy when you're exhausted? I don't know. How about another hit of drama? <laughs> okay, I'll delete 11 of the playlist, but I'm keeping one. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. <laughs> but send me that one. <laughs> okay. I mean, look, drama we'll mergers. Yeah, we'll mergers. <laughs> look, drama's also playful and fun. I mean, like I I see all these comments on um on my like Facebook or Instagram posts about my book. And they're like, I hate the drama, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And I'm like, did you need to say it in that 
way. <laughs> like, here's an example of drama playing itself out. I hate drama capitalized. And I was like, you're using the actual tools, devices of drama to explain how you hate drama. Just, just to be clear. But other people are really funny. They're like, I hate the drama, but I love K- K-pop drama or Korean drama. <laughs> I didn't even or, know that was a thing. <laughs> oh my gosh, such a thing. Such a big thing. I've never seen it, but like um, I've seen... I've seen like t-shirts that say like, I love Korean drama, Korean soap opera drama or something like that. And it was, you know, like things like that. It's like, well, I hate the drama, but I love going to the theater or I love other people's drama, just not my own. And, you know, it's, it's funny because we don't even necessarily recognize that we get something from that. If we watch that soap opera, if we walk, go to that theater, if we listen to somebody else's gossip, but we don't participate, we still get a physiological response. We still get a stress response. We are still engaging in the physiological and emotional process of drama by being a bystander. There is no neutrality here. So if you like, if you're like, I hate drama, and but I too love watching those reality shows and they are such a mess. Oh my gosh. I have a friend who I think is going on one of the housewife shows and we were laughing about it because she's, she's just, she really is like not interested in the drama. So it was, we were coaching about what to do about it. And um, anyways, but if you find yourself going, Oh, I love watching it. Like if you're even listening to the story and you're like, wait, I want to go back and hear more details about like what happened when you were in jail, Melissa, like, (laughs) Did you meet anyone? Did you, you know, like, like, did you get in any fights? Like, if you're like hankering, if your curiosity is more about the narrative than Melissa's experience, that's a pretty good indicator. You might have a little propensity for the drama. That is me. It's like actually well known (laughs) that I will ask for more details as mundane as they seem because I need to know, I need to paint the full picture of what's happening. I'm like, no, but. What shoes was he wearing? Why did he trip? Like, why does he does he do bunny ears instead of loop, swoop, and pull? That's why he tripped, and this is why it happened. And I'm gonna dissect mm. this all <laughs> because you're creating the full narrative. You yes. want the full what's called the dramatic narrative, and it's like you're picturing in your head and you're playing it out, and you get to play it out even after they left, right? Yes. And yeah. so they gave you the gift of a dramatic narrative that you get to have a dramatic response to, a physiological and emotional response to. That is the the generous gift of drama. It just keeps giving. Or like The Bachelor will end and I'll go to Twitter to see if I can find out any other details that didn't make it to the show. Or this is my healthier outlet of drama. And I'm going to do air quotes of healthier because I'm not (laughs) sure now. (laughs) But, But my, it's funny, it took my husband a couple of years to realize this, but I will sometimes respond to things just because it's the funnier response that might be on a sitcom rather than the adequate way to respond to my husband. So mm-hmm. Like what? Used... Give us some examples. <laughs> just like anything. I, I wish I could remember, think of something off the top of my head. It happens probably a hundred times a day where I'll just like shoot back with something that almost sounds snarky or, or like all of a sudden I'm a character that I'm not really. And he'll, he'll respond back like I'm serious and I'll look at him like, that was just a response for my show. <laughs> He's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, the show that's running in your 
<laughs> in your oh, mind yeah, yeah. that this is Wait, my sitcom. Hmm. If people were watching, they would laugh on oh this gosh. response, not the other one, even though there's no one around but us. Yes. <laughs> Melissa, do you also imagine every once in a while, like you're walking on the street, you have your like music in, and it's like, oh, this is this is the sound score to my movie that's being filmed right now. <laughs> And everyone's like, and just like these little moments of going like, this is how I'm walking in the movie. Do you ever do that? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I hear audience applause when no one's actually around. <laughs> Are we twins? <laughs> did my own show. <laughs> Are we drama twins? <laughs> Hopefully. You can, you can uh, star in my movie. We'll do a crossover. Oh my gosh. I love a good crossover. <laughs> of our of our movies that's really funny and people might be like this sounds super narcissistic <laughs> and you're welcome no <laughs> um but it is like there's a way in which we it's not i wouldn't say it's classically narcissist at all and and classically narcissism is actually most people think it's like oh they just love themselves Ooh, loves they hate themselves first of all know that and they the, what there's their obsession with themselves is because they are in an, a jail and they are the only person in that jail. Um, and so like when we talk about like these moments of like being in our own movie, it is a representation of probably having spent a fair amount of time in the entrapment of, of the jail that we call numbing in which we are locked in ourselves, separated from other people, separated from the world. And that's a trauma response. And so if you start to like, you know, when we're doing it playfully, we're like making, you know, we're in our own movie. We have this very playful banter about it, but it, it also is a reflection of a strategy to, to navigate being so alone. So the pervasive isolation that comes with trauma and very much is the base of an addiction to drama. I thought of an example. Oh, good. That happened last night. Yeah. It was one of those times where my husband was he he makes a good amount of meals at this point because I'm always breastfeeding or whatever. And you're and making he, other meals. Yes. And he said he was gonna cook. And in my mind, I started to get a little agitated and I wanted to say, like, where is my food? And so saying it in a comedic tone, and I was just like, I said something like, When are you gonna cook, slave? <laughs> and so I actually got to get out my emotion of being sort of irritated that it was taking longer than Mm-hmm. and even say it in the tone I wanted to but I added a little humor value to it and then he started mm-hmm. laughing and he's like okay I'm making it right now but there's a lot of things <laughs> like that in my household where I'll just sort of sort of take it to a new level because I think it'll be funny while look, expressing my emotion <laughs> look, a lot of comedians have made their platform and their life off their own sort of like addiction to drama and and channeling it into a really comedic place like i i did stand up and it wasn't good i mean <laughs> my mom thought i was good but i wasn't that good um but it you know it's a it's a it's an excellent channel i was in the arts for years i got to channel all that desire for intensity and extremes onto a stage i got to live every night 
being anxious and nervous before every performance than the high of performing and, and pulling people into my world every night for years. And then when I stopped doing that, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm still doing it. <laughs> yeah, I got certified in skydiving. <laughs> of course, really? And the moment I got the certification, I was like, okay, I never want to do this again. It kind of talks to Com- my... Commitment issues? Yeah. <laughs> no, it was the goal was reached. And after that, I, I started to realize Boring. part of the reason I did it was because I thought it would be cool to tell people that I did. And so then the moment that I got certified, I was like, well, there's no more goal here. I don't mm. want to just keep risking my life. <laughs> yeah, I was risking my life to impress other people. Let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, you were living your life to tell the story of it. So I know, I, I know we're addicted to drama. What can I say? <laughs> Look, and I, I hope those who are listening can can hear the playfulness in this because I think, you know, while it, it has serious consequences for the individual and those people around them, and it's been such a shame thing. I mean, if you, there was no, there were no books, there was no research on addiction and drama. There was just articles about like how to navigate a drama queen. You know, what a, first of all, what a gendered, crappy kind of connotation to... Also, why a queen? I mean, I, I like as opposed to like a princess or a peasant. Oh, I know why a queen because they were like, yeah, or a peasant. Yeah, <laughs> a drama peasant isn't nearly as appealing to want to be. So maybe we should <laughs> we should twist the who doesn't want to be a little. queen or you know some royalty a drama royal. But you talk oh. about the serious consequences, yeah. and one of the things that I was surprised by is that it can actually manifest into physical symptoms. Oh, yeah. tell us about that. Yeah. So it can make you grow an extra leg. Yeah. For men, that doesn't sound so bad. For women, oh, I don't know. Oh, wow. You went there. <laughs> I was baiting you and you went there. I'll Good always for us. take the bait. Oh, <laughs> uh, nice. Um, yeah. I mean, so when we think about, like, if I said to you, stress is bad, you'd probably shake your head because you've heard it in every health class, you've read in every magazine. Well, I'm going to say something that's a little provocative. Stress is great. If you didn't have a stress response, you would die. Doesn't that sound dramatic? I just, I like adding the drama in there. But I felt um, something. You felt something. (laughs) Where did you feel that? Everywhere. (laughs) So when we think about stress, it's, it's a very simple process. For stress, we get what's called activated. It's that all that hormonal release, it's basically the energy reserves being unlocked so that you can go into the next stage, which is called um, mobilization. Mobilization means you take energy into action in order to adapt. So our stress response system is really about, is our adaptation system. Here's a stimulus. Here's a ball coming at me. For example, I have an activation response. I have a mobilization. I move out the way the ball, or I catch the ball. We could say fight or flight. Yeah. Then I have a deactivation phase. The muscles relax a little bit. The nerves get unpinged. My, um, I more blood flow to my organs again, so I can rest and digest the emotions that came with that experience. Then, if once I've completed the digestion or met- met- metabolization of those emotions and I've continued to relax a little bit, then I can go into a restoration phase, which is what I was talking about earlier. And um, restoration means I'm building up that ATP again. I'm building up the energy to go and keep adapting in the dance of life. 
if I interrupt that cycle, if I do not get into completion, this is where disease comes from. All the bad things we think about stress is the interruption of that cycle, not the stimulus. We're like, oh, work is hard. That's causing me disease. It's not. Because, or this relationship is causing me stress, so I'm getting sick. It's not. It is not ever the stimulus. It is our ability and our capacity, our resilience to be with that stimulus and move through the cycle of a stress response. If we are not able to complete it, where we get overwhelmed, flooded, overstimulated, we're interrupting that cycle, that is where disease festers in the stagnation of that cycle. And so for those who are addicted to drama, they get all that revved up energy, that activation, like we were talking about, they don't quite get mobilization sometimes, but it looks like more of a disorganized mobilization. Like they're like, because what they're doing is instead of adapting, they're doing activities to generate more energy, more emotion, more intensity, more extremes. Then they have this cathartic outburst, super disorganized, super sloppy, rolling down the hill. They're not even present. They're blacked out basically in the eruption of their emotions. Then because they never properly went through the channels of metabolizing the experience, they don't get to the rest. They're never building the energy. All the They're being constantly flooded by the hormones without the uptake of them. So all like it does start to affect the immune system. It starts to affect your memory center. It starts to affect the gray matter of your brain. It starts to affect the functionality of your adrenals and kidneys and your organs. It affects your skin. All these things that you might have read about, about the ills of stress, are actually the interruption of your stress response, which is a constant for those with an addiction to trauma. They cannot complete that cycle because the rest and digest phase brings them too close to that vulnerability that they will be victims to whatever they are not prepared for. They would not be vigilant enough to, for the next threat that will come. So they cannot enter that rest, that digestion of, content, of emotions that would also bring them too close to the original pains. Or it was never modeled in their house, so they don't even know how to go into that if they grew up in a household of parents with an addiction to drama or chaos. So they never get to restore, so they are living life on empty. Match that with our urgency culture, which is pushing us faster than we can process. We are all in some version of being over flooded, overstimulated, and under processed and under resourced by our own systems of support. Cheery. If that's not motivation, since <laughs> having kids, the amount of the amount of things I tried to heal or I did yeah. heal, worked on, got yeah. somewhere with it my 20s it was a lot you know I, I went into self-development I started trying to fix my life and I felt like I was getting to a pretty good place although there's always something to be worked on until I had kids and then all Oof. of a sudden the reflections of like do I want to pass this on what habits and behaviors am I modeling right now and so even from the little things I can imagine how many people are now because if you're looking at addictive to drama as an addiction to some sort of sensation, yeah. then imagine what social media is doing to all of us and 
all of the amazingly produced TV shows like Handmaid's Tale. Like, I actually usually have to sit I've down and process. Oh my gosh, you you want to feel something? I'll watch it again. Yeah, <laughs> the last season's coming up. It is wild, but you can't watch that show and not feel something. Especially now that I have kids. I didn't have it when I first started. I didn't have any kids. Now I'm like, oh my god, what if this was reality? <laughs> like superimposing it into my life. But yeah. all of these things that are meant to make us feel and meant to make us come back to the app, yeah. to the show, to whatever it is. It's just sort of fueling our addiction to drama. So how do we start to heal? Is it just a boredom detox? Do I need to go to like a tent in the middle of the woods with no electronics for like three months? <laughs> I would love to see you do that. And I would I would love if we could film it just to see the so crazy. So you can see the drama from the so outside. I can see the drama from the outside. Wait, is that bad? <laughs> I don't think that's the point. Oh, okay. So we're we're not talking about your next reality show. Okay. Yeah, you're right. The social media media in general are all replicating ways the orient the ways in which an addiction to drama has formed. So what may have been 20 years ago on more of a micro scale in terms of the the conditions, we're now seeing on a macro scale. A lot of folks are addicted to drama. And there's scale. It's a scale, you know? Um, so going to the woods and doing a detox, are you talking about like like a desert, like Burning Man type of situation? Or do you have to be alone? What, what were you thinking for your reality show that I'm going to watch? I feel like I would feel too much <laughs> at Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> I was always known for like taking the pill before I found out what it was. So oh, maybe I shouldn't go there. <laughs> Um, look, what you're talking about is like a very abstinence only approach, which is like, oh, just stop the heroin. First of all, you're going to have withdrawal symptoms. And so you have to be prepared for that. You're going to have withdrawal symptoms from the drama. You're going to start to find the itch of where you can get the next hit of drama. And the thing is, is in the desert, you probably have a harder time getting heroin than drama because you always have your mind to replay memories and stories with. So it's, it takes a long time because you're going to catch yourself in an infinite of ways in which you rev yourself up, in which you keep getting that hit of crisis and chaos. So the first piece of it really is awareness of like, hmm, how might I be contributing to this current situation? And that's a hard question to ask ourselves. Or like, hmm, this, this scenario feels familiar. Why do I have, have found myself, why have I found myself in a similar situation? Why have I found myself in a similar relationship that's unfulfilling or um, chaotic? And to start to recognize our not not us as the issue, but as the issue as the issue of like going like don't shame yourself. That's just adding that's just adding logs to the fire of numbness. But what I would recommend is going, okay, is this something I want? Like really getting to the question. Is this level of pain necessary? Is, is me writing in all caps, I hate the drama, helping my nervous system or hindering it by adding more stress to it? You know, so starting to really get honest with yourself is, an, is a first stage of dealing with it. Then we have, you know, in the book, there's a whole series of practices and exercises. How do you start to interrupt the pattern? And that takes a lot of time. 
it takes a lot of time. It's not like just going, oh, I picked up the drink. I'm going to set it down. It's like, oh, here I am in all these different ways. I'm revving myself. How do I step back from it? How do I step back from this gossip? How do I step back from the story I just created? And how do I step back from all these ways in which I am creating or have sought this stress, even though I had no idea I was doing it? Then we're going to get to a point where it's like, okay, there's enough space. I'm I'm not going to reflexively take myself out of emotional processing. I've created the, the space to start to go, I'm going to address the trauma. I'm going to address the underlying thing that's been hidden in a cocoon of numbness. And then you will deal with a lot of things, what it's like to start to feel more, to feel more nuances of things, to feel the the multiple flavors of an apple as opposed to, an, I remember when I was working with someone and I had her bite an apple on the first time and she was like, it's neutral. And then we really went in and slowed down till she could start to taste the flavors of an apple. Because one of the things with an addiction to drama is the mundane which is full of life and richness, um, or excuse me, the normal becomes mundane. And it, we we bypass the richness of subtleties of life and, and rely on the extremes for what we think of as life. So to come back to something like an apple and taste it is profound. And then there's a whole process of, you know, like I said, mobile, moving through that stress, processing it, metabolizing it, not stress, trauma. And then there's this whole really difficult process of, you know, letting the identity around the addiction to drama go, the the sense of that we are a victim in life, the sense that life is against me. So we're we have to rewire our perceptions, our, our we have to rewire our sense of reality and who we are in that reality as part of this healing process. Us will just keep repeating it. I'm reminded of sugar detoxing. Or I remember when I was beginning to eat healthier in my 20s and all of a sudden I'm like, well, a blackberry doesn't taste as good as a Starburst blackberry flavor. <laughs> it is, you know, And then you finally take that away and now I have conventional candy and I'm like oh my god all I taste is sugar there's yeah, no like yeah. there's no like subtleties of notes <laughs> versus yeah. like or coffee right now uh I I used to just have lattes like unsweetened for some reason in pregnancy I just crave way more sugar and so <laughs> throughout mm -hmm. my pregnancy I was like <laughs> putting like three tablespoons of honey in there <laughs> I'm like well it's local honey it's still good for me and so now I'm still trying to like detox from that and it's funny because my husband will make me coffees and he knows what my goal is right now so I'll put in the amount that he wants to put in and then he'll come around the corner and he's like are you putting more honey in and I'm like well if if whatever honey you put in is free honey because I didn't see it <laughs> <laughs> this is the only honey that I see going into this. It's a whole thing. But once you get sure. to the point of actually not overwhelming your taste buds with sugar, you can actually taste the notes, the subtle notes of a really good coffee or mm -hmm. a glass of wine, if that's your thing or, what, or whatever it is. And so the detox process isn't just about getting to a place where everything's just boring and so you don't feel anything at all. It's it's actually being able to feel the real things, like the subtle no notes of joy and yeah. 
real enthusiasm or yeah knowing when you're actually angry versus when you you just sort of manufactured it. it yeah yeah absolutely i'm obsessed with frozen blueberries right now oh they're good so good and my, my toddler eats them every day, frozen blueberries. <laughs> your toddler and I are also twins. Um, <laughs> but it it's like I have friends who love like cakes and sugar. And I'm like, ah, oh, a blueberry. <laughs> and like like the the grit of the blueberry. And they're like, you have way too much time on your hands. And I'm like, no, I've just slowed down enough to taste the flavors of life as opposed to having like, the overwhelm of life drive me and and sweep me away as though that's what living is. And so isn't it yeah. funny how like we we assume because people say that a lot. That's like a phrase people use. You have too much time on your hands. It's like what to stop and spell life? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like to actually experience things. Yes, too much time on my hands. But I love leaving listeners with a practice to really focus on to embody though what we've learned in this episode so if you were to leave them with one thing mm-hmm. to focus on this week what would it be yeah i would say take the time to taste your food like since we we've, we've been doing that or having that conversation this was a practice i did in my 20s and then returned to it later with more capacity which was i would spend about six hours. No, I'm just kidding. I would spend, I did in college spend an hour a day eating mango and ice cream as my meditation, but to, to slow down and, and take as long as you can, like bring the food to your lips, feel the texture of it, feel the, the, the qualities that emerge, the notes, as you said, the subtle flavors that come as the first chew and the second chew and feel how your tongue moves the food and 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 follow it down as it moves through your throat. I mean, we might not be used to this level of attention, but to really take the time to discover the layers of something as opposed to the overgeneralization of it. Because that's what happens in addiction and drama. Everything is overgeneralized. My bad moment of the day becomes a bad day. That fight that we had a week ago becomes this relationship isn't working. And so to go from an overgeneralization into the nuances and the complexities of something as easy as food will support you in being able to do that in the complex realm of emotions. I need this in my life right now. It's something I did in my 20s also when I was recovering from bulimia. But now I have a newborn, and so my meals, <laughs> I actually just ate lunch before getting on this call, and I ate in like 45 seconds. <laughs> it's oh. like, how whole can I swallow my food? Because I have one minute <laughs> before <laughs> I know that my baby will awake. So I think this is a great practice. And and just, I think it also helps to bring back to all of the beautiful things that we can feel, the sensations that we have at our fingertips that aren't going to erupt our lives in some ways. And and I love that overgeneralization tip because, yeah, like you are chewing and it's just a hamburger, but what's actually on there? It's like grass-fed beef with a bun and lettuce and tomato. Like what's in between? What 
what creates that hamburger? And so bringing that into all the areas of your life, like what creates this joy? What are the subtle notes of feeling that I'm feeling underneath this big emotion that I'm, I'm used to kind of identifying with and, and what subtleties can I find? So thank you so much for this book. I think it was needed. I, I recognize that I've come a long way since my peak addiction to drama, but there's still quite a ways to go. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your book, where's the best place for them to connect? Yeah, they can check out my website, uh, drscottlyons.com. It's D-R-S-O-T-T-L-Y-O-N-S.com. Uh, there's information about my podcast. There's information about my book. There's a quiz. Are you addicted to drama? Do you know someone addicted to drama? It's a fun little quiz um, and lots of other information as well as um, I'm on social media like Instagram at Dr. Scott Lyons as well. And I, I hear I'm on TikTok as well. <laughs> you just found out. You're an, I just found out. You're a viral audio. <laughs> audio. <laughs> you don't even know why. I just found out I have 10 million followers on TikTok, but I've never actually stepped foot on the app. So <laughs> who knows? I'm just kidding. <laughs> All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 295. And you've already heard your challenge for this week. Actually slow down and taste your food. This might seem unrelated to drama addiction, but when you think about it, that's where all mindfulness begins, is actually tuning into your body and the sensations that you're feeling, hearing, seeing, tasting. And food is a really pleasurable way to get that entry point. When you do engage in this practice, you'll often see how much is actually going on in your mind. The fact that maybe you want to watch TV or scroll your phone while consuming and tasting and swallowing. And it's no wonder why most of us can't tune into our own hunger cues, let alone our intuition or our more subtle energies. And if, while you're doing this, you want to go even deeper into creating a life around mindfulness, the best way to do that is by joining the Mind Love membership. You can find out more information at mindlove.com membership. Every month we get new masterclasses that help you to really immerse yourself into the content because I know how easy it can be to just listen and then go about your day without actually applying any of the things that you're learning from these episodes. So the Mind Love membership holds your hand and walks you through that to where you can create a peaceful life for yourself. So find out more at mindlove.com membership. The last two months, the masterclasses have been incredible, diving into self-discipline and goal setting, which have been heavily requested topics. So if you've been wanting to do something big or you've been wanting to get your life more manageable, join the MindLove membership at mindlove.com slash membership. You can also find all of my amazing sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And if you love this episode, please consider sharing it. We all have that one friend that comes to mind when we're thinking about drama addiction. So take a screenshot, share this on social media, or share it directly with a friend or family member. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. Thank you.